Welcome back to the Julie Norman Show. If you've been listening to the podcast this season, the first several episodes that uh, we've been doing have been focusing, at least in some ways, on the U.S., on the Capitol riot, on polarization, some of these themes. And we're going to move away from that a little bit today. Um, I'm really glad to have my good friend as a guest today, Dr. Gree Wester. Gree is a lecturer in bioethics and global health ethics at King's College London. But this year, she was also a member of an expert group in her native country of Norway. And the expert group was really tasked with priority setting for the coronavirus vaccine. So essentially deciding the order in which people would get vaccinated. So all the the categories and tiers that exist in most countries now, uh, Gree was part of the team that was putting that together in Norway and and, and similar, not not completely the same as as many other countries like the U.S. and the U.K. And Gree's training is in political philosophy, but her work is always focused on trying to use philosophy and ethics to address real-world policy challenges, and especially questions related to justice, equality, and public health. So in this conversation, I wanted to ask her about the vaccine uh, group and how they decided who was prioritized and some of the things that went into that. Um, But we talk about some of the competing ethical considerations more generally that have defined policy choices during the pandemic, as well as just personal choices as well. And also just broader questions about public health and social inequalities. In addition to being a philosopher and a really interesting public health person, Gree is also just a very cool individual. She's an improv actor. She's a bike mechanic. She's a break dancer. She's a British military fitness aficionado. And she's a lot of fun. So this was a really interesting chat for me. And I hope it's interesting for you too. And so now here's my talk with Gree Wester. Gree Wester, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Julie. It's really exciting to join this podcast. Uh, I'm so impressed that you, uh, you're doing this. I think it's really an amazing podcast, the episodes that I've listened to. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty impressive that you were on the expert panel for Norway to decide who got the vaccines. I think that's a little bit more impressive these days. Um, oh, thank you. Um, so I, I do want to ask you about that, of course. But before we get into that, I just have never really asked you, how did you first get interested in philosophy and public policy and especially health inequalities within all of that? So kind of what was your what was your path that got you up to to doing things like you're doing now? Yeah, thanks, Julie. Um, It's kind of a a long winding path, really. Um, I think um, when I started university, I started studying psychology, actually, and um, I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, but then my studies weren't really what I expected, and I sort of drifted gradually towards um, philosophy. Um, and I think I, I realised that philosophers were asking the kinds of questions that I, were more, I was more interested in. Um, what, what kinds of questions? Well, um, I, I, I think when I studied psychology, I realised they were very constrained in terms of the questions asked in one way, because they had to try and answer those questions with experiments. Uh, and that means, well, you have to ask, yeah, you have to ask the kind of question that can be answered by collecting empirical data, right? But I was, I usually uh, was always more interested in the kind of question that were like more, yeah, broader, 
more general questions, maybe even, you know, uh, sounds a bit pretentious, but maybe even like existential questions and more sort of uh, what was the, the meaning of, of even life or, or, or thinking more generally around relationships um, and ethics and morality. Uh, and those questions, you can't really sort of collect data to answer them. Um, but this was not a realization I had sort of immediately. I think it was growing uh, gradually through my studies um, that I got a bit frustrated when I felt repeatedly that we were always stopping with those questions, just they started to get interesting. Um, and how yeah. did you end up linking that to more public policy? Because on the one hand, it's like you said, these big questions about ethics and morality and kind of these existential themes, but then you have a very applied approach to all of that with wanting to link it very directly to things that are actually happening. I think I wanted to do something more useful than just, uh, you know, sit and read Heidegger and what this thinker from, if you're trying to interpret exactly what he was saying, because that was kind of a uh, philosophy that didn't really have any practical applicability. Um, but then I had, it was also partly due to my, uh, I mean, a large part due, I should say, to my amazing supervisor, Professor Joe Wolf. Uh, so he was teaching me um, political philosophy, which I'd never done before. Um, and that turned out to be like really my sort of perfect uh, subject that was, you know, both theoretical, but also had a lot of practical applicability, applicability at least in the way that uh, Joe Wolf taught it to me. Um, so that was really the start of uh, I think a road towards more yeah practical and uh, applicable um, philosophy and really and, questions with policy relevance. And how did you end up focusing on health inequalities in particular within within that policy side of things? Yes, yeah, so I, I started by writing a dissertation on disability. So at the time there was, um, I mean, there was of course all sorts of debates going on, but, but Joe, uh, sort of nudged me in the direction of, of questions that have been not well enough addressed maybe in the literature and, and I was trying to answer questions about how disability should um, or yeah if you want to say more, more broader health should figure in, in a, a theory of, of justice but yeah I started with like the narrow problem of disability and then I moved from that um, to in my to, to in my PhD to think about broader questions or you know health on a population level whereas yeah disability was kind of questions about individuals really uh, but yeah in my PhD started thinking about health uh, of the population and yeah I was always I mean that was the kind of core topics that I was working with um, working on with, with with Joe as my supervisor was sort of questions around theories of, of equality and inequality so that was always been my kind of core uh, expertise. All right. Well, I might come back and ask you some more about that in a little bit. But um, so yeah, I know you've been lecturing on bioethics, on global health ethics, but then this last year, you've also been one of the members of the expert group on ethics and priority setting for coronavirus vaccination in your home country of Norway. So essentially, this is what I understand is the committee that essentially decided how the vaccines were going to be rolled out and who would have priority and, and whatnot. So um, walk me through how this group worked. So there's, I guess, about like a dozen of you or so, is that right? Uh, no, we, we actually, we were six people. Six people, okay. Okay, so you had this group of about six people then 
who were needing to decide the order of vaccinations for the whole country. So what did that process look like? Like, what did this group of you do? What kinds of things were you taking into account? What kinds of things were you considering in this process to make these decisions? Yeah, no, it was, um, I mean, we had um, we had a very clear mandate. So we, we there were two things that we were asked to do. Um, and one was to sort of define what the goals of the vaccination program should be. Um, that might sound like it's, it's obvious, but it's, it's not obvious what those goals should be. Uh, and the second question was um, who should be, yeah, what groups in society should receive uh, the corona vaccine first in the first phase of the vaccination program? So come up with kind of priority uh, order. And, and in answering these questions, obviously we were not we were not the first group to to sit down and consider these questions. So we were specifically asked to to look at other recommendations that had been published. The WHO had already come out with a sort of document and values framework for this work that was meant to provide guidance for other countries in in, in setting up these priorities. So um, so yeah, we did we do look a lot at what uh, we. What other countries had had been doing, and sort of um, take that into account as well. And and I want to get to actually what you actually decided. But first, it was interesting to me when you shared some of this with me about this identifying goals initially. Because you're right, like it was like coronavirus vaccine. Like, shouldn't it be obvious what the goal is? <laughs> and yet, I remember you telling me all the different kinds of goals that you were trying to weigh because there were actually many objectives and perhaps competing objectives. So can you say a bit more about that? Yes, I think, I mean, in a way, the main, uh, I mean, we set up five uh, goals and the top two goals were to uh, to prevent death um, and, and prevent serious uh, mortality. Um, the other three goals are about um, uh, protecting critical societal functions, including, of course, healthcare. Um, and also to uh, protect the economy and jobs and, and to lastly gradually reopen society again. Um, and so I think all, everyone will agree that these are all really important goals. But I think they're kind of, in a way, the key difficult issue, the key dilemma in a way is to what extent do you give priority to the goal of saving lives? Um, and again, it might sound obvious that's a really, really important task. Um, but I think in in all societies, we tend to, it's a kind of accepted practice that we don't give absolute priority to saving lives. In fact, most societies would say we put a price on life. That sounds very callous, but that is in fact what we, or what we do. Uh, because I think a good example is sort of traffic and road safety. Um, we can always make our roads safer or reduce, um, you know, what's called the, the um, speed limits. You could have everyone drive really, really, really slowly, uh, or we could spend, you know, loads and loads more money to make roads safer. Um, and the problem with doing that is that it has other costs, right? If you want to make everyone drive really slowly, that would have lots of other costs and cause many problems. We, as a society, at least the way we do things now, we've decided we're not willing to accept those costs. And also, we're not we're not willing to spend unlimited amounts on road safety to save perhaps, you know, a few more lives a year. So we, we make those calculations. Um, people are not always aware of it, but we do that. So it's clear that we don't give absolute priority to saving lives. Um, and this issue has come up as well very much in the pandemic. I think everyone has come across these 
these issues and, and themes that people are, people might not put it so bluntly, but it has been suggesting, well, we could let more people die and then reopen society for the benefit of, of everyone else. Um, and it's true that at some point, um, if the number of lives you're saving is very small and the sort of larger costs and harms to society are large, become you know very very considerable then these become very difficult questions and so the answer to them is not obvious yeah and i know when the pandemic was first starting around this time last year i remember the two of us like sitting on a bench on the south bank and you actually like talk like you were the first one who raised this really quite early with saying there's going to be really hard ethical trade-offs here between this visible loss of life and prioritizing that with somewhat like the unquantifiable loss of life or um, cost to to life that that this might entail in terms of you know mental health and well-being and increase of suicides and these kinds of things i remember you were one of the first ones to point that out. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that with how you personally were kind of foreseeing some of that and maybe some of these, what I think for you were kind of tough ethical questions that maybe the rest of us weren't really thinking about, at least that early on. Yeah, I think um, I also remember those conversations, Julian. Like, thanks for being so such a patient listener to me at the time. I think I was ranting quite a lot. I was very, <laughs> I was very frustrated. I love a good rant. <laughs> but um, I, um, uh, it was it was very interesting because yeah, on the one hand, so I work now in you know population health. So these kinds of questions are, you know, you know, not not new in in one way. I mean, yes, it's new in the sense of. I'm living through these questions in a pandemic, but yeah, you've come across these questions before. Uh, but I think what was particularly new to me was to be affected so personally by all of uh, of the things that were happening. And I mean, that, as I think as an ethicist, um, a bioethicist, you kind of have the luxury often of just thinking completely theoretically about, yeah, these questions, yeah, they have practical applicability, but they don't necessarily have any implications for yourself. But here, you know, find yourself in the middle of this well, enormous situation going on and, uh, and, and and everything that happens has like immediate consequences for you and, and your life. Um, and I have to uh, yeah, confess that at the beginning, uh, I, I found it very, very hard. I thought lockdown was, was very difficult to cope with. And I think in the beginning, especially, I was, I was quite motivated to find good arguments uh, against lockdown, I have to say that. Um, I mean, my, my views changed now, but at, that was kind of at the time a part of my uh, motivation, I think, and I wanted to, and it sort of irritated me that um, that it wasn't talked about so much in the beginning, um, and and I felt like no, this is these are other massive consequences that we need to talk about. It's not straightforward what the right answer is. Well, I, we might come back to that, but let's come back to the the expert group. So the expert group did decide to prioritize this idea of saving lives and keeping people from getting sick being mindful of the other elements as well, keeping healthcare going, protecting employment, reopening society, but maybe not as front and center as saving lives and keeping people from getting sick. And I remember you said there were also kind of a discussion of which values to prioritize in this. And I was wondering if you could say more about that with what values you all kind of talked about and why some were considered more front and center than others. Yeah, so I think um, um, setting out a values framework um, 
it wasn't something we were specifically asked to do, um, but it was something that the WHO has done, and I think pretty much every other group who's, who's done this work in, in various countries, they've also set out these values to guide the process. And so these values are important to, um, I think as, as the WHO has said, it's important to have these values there to, to signal, um, to make clear that these are deeply ethical questions. It's not that we can sort of derive the answers that we want simply from, from the science. Um, so th these are ethical questions. So we should put some, we need to sort of show which other values that are at stake in a way, and that we are, we will be making certain trade-offs between different values. It's, it's important to know which those values are. Um, so yeah, we're setting out some values um, that kind of provide yeah, a bit of a framework in a way, a sort of platform on which we can sort of build our further recommendations. But again, these values are quite general and they don't immediately translate directly into some clear cut answers. It's more like I said, they can maybe identify um, and make clearer certain um, uh, certain trade-offs that we're going to have to make. But I think so we had um, three sort of key values. Um, well, we had five values in total, but two of them are a bit, are a bit more sort of process oriented. They were trust and legitimacy. Um, the three others um, were equal respect, um, equity and, and, and welfare. We called it welfare. Uh, actually, well, we would have preferred to use maybe the, the term beneficence, but it doesn't have a very good Norwegian translations. We ended <laughs> up with, with welfare. But yeah, you say welfare, utility, uh, beneficence. So these were the values that we uh, sort of uh, landed on. And I was interested, there was one that you said you kind of rejected, I think like reciprocity, you decided you didn't want as a key value. So I thought that was interesting, like, because I think anytime people list values, we're all like, yeah, okay, good. But like, I'm always interested which ones like don't make the cut. So why, like, why was reciprocity something that you did not include? Yeah, so and I think here I should also say that uh, this is a slightly controversial. I mean, the other other groups and committees have uh, gone the other way and they have included reciprocity. The WHO included reciprocity. So the idea behind the value of reciprocity is that you sort of uh, rewarded or recognised for some contribution that you have made. And of course, the contribution um, in play here is, is um, taking on risks and burden. So in particular it applies to healthcare workers, but they are, I mean, they are not, there are also many other frontline workers who are exposed to uh, risk of infection much more than others who, like me, who sort of stay at home a lot of the time. But yeah, so the idea is that as, as a healthcare worker, for example, you go, you, 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 you work with patients, uh, you therefore are much more exposed to risk of coronavirus, and therefore surely in, in sort of, in recognition of that, you deserve protection and so you should get a higher priority for for the vaccine so that's how um the value of reciprocity would sort of play in when you sort of try and work out your priority order um but yeah so the reason we didn't include it was when we and we don't we don't want to sort of um reject um this as a sort of consideration but we gave in the end more weight to other considerations so we think that this you know, reciprocity is a very nice value, but it has some problematic aspects to it. And some of this comes from actually um, my work with, with disability many, many, many years ago as a student. And so in the disability literature, 
uh, they don't like this idea that um, your sort of contribution that you, you know you should be valued in terms of your uh, ability to contribute. So I mean many because the contribution, well what is the contribution? The contribution here often means something something that you do in terms of your labor. And many people with severe disabilities may not be able to do any work. So what does that mean? Does that mean so you're not contributing to society in the sort of ordinary sense? So does that mean you're not worthy of protection? So that's one kind of side to the value of reciprocity that we thought was a bit problematic. So we did not want to make um, worthiness of, of protection something that was dependent on your kind of contribution to, to society. So what was the order then that you decided and how was it, how was it in any way kind of differ from, different from what other countries decided? So, I mean, the order of, of um, prioritization that we came up with is very similar to, to what other countries have done. I think the key difference is, is the healthcare workers. So they got slightly lower priority in our, um, in our priority, uh, priority recommendations. So what we recommended was that those with um, high risk of, of, of getting the sort of high risk of becoming very severely ill or high risk of death, they should be vaccinated first. So we know that risk very highly correlates with age. So the older you are, the higher your risk of, of a severe illness or, or death from coronavirus. I mean, generally speaking, it's kind of one, of the, one of the biggest predictors. Of course, there are lots of other medical risks. Uh, diabetes uh, gives you a very high risk of, of severe illness and death and of the many other conditions as well. So yeah, so th that's how we worked out. So those uh, individuals or groups with the highest risk of, of death and illness should be vaccinated first. And, and healthcare workers came a bit further down the line, but they were our kind of second main priority group. Whereas like in the US and I think in the UK, they were in the top tier, right? To have healthcare workers vaccinated. Yeah, that's that's right. And But I should say, I mean, there's also this you know, complicating factor. I mean, this, this is an important point is that we, our, our recommendations were dependent on the level of infection in society at any time. So Norway has been very lucky and has had a pandemic very much under control for for large periods of time. So, and this was a kind of precondition for our recommendations. We did say, well, we called it dynamic prioritization, that I mean, if infection rates go um, very high, then healthcare workers needed to get vaccinated first. And of course, this, this means, I mean, this is because we need healthcare workers there to do their job. So healthcare workers, even if they're not necessarily, um, I mean, this was our uh, judgment that they were not in at a high risk of death, but they could still get ill with coronavirus. And of course, if enough people are on, on sick leave and have to isolate at home, then we don't have any healthcare workers to uh, to do the job. And that's the has been a, a real concern both in the US and, and here in the UK that the healthcare system would collapse. Um, right, that's such an interesting distinction because I do think that's crucial because when I had heard you talk about this before, and in the context of reciprocity, I was like, well, to me, that's not really why I saw the healthcare workers getting the vaccine first in the US or UK. It was more of a pragmatic decision because 
yeah, because the hospitals were just being like overwhelmed and like just the the risk of like just all these doctors and like nurses and like frontline people getting sick and not able to like do it. It was more that than like, oh, they're deserving. But then in Norway, where that wasn't happening in the hospitals, that's that's a different kind of context, right? Yeah, but yeah, but you're absolutely right. I mean, so the reciprocity argument is this one argument, but the other even more important argument, I think, is is to preserve the healthcare services ability to protect and treat the rest of us. So, but when that isn't really, you know, under threat, then it's only the reciprocity argument left. And 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 yeah, there's a question of you know when does this become very pressing that the healthcare system is under verge of of, of collapsing. Um, and people, I mean, healthcare workers themselves can also have um, different perceptions of this. I mean, there were we got some pushback for this. Um, I mean, those were in the minority, but there were some healthcare workers who did not like our, our recommendations. I'm sure there were. Um, <laughs> well, I wanted to add to you another element too, and we've talked a bit about equity issues in regards to COVID and how um, some groups and individuals in certain groups are more susceptible to it than others. And I was wondering how that figured into your thinking at all regarding the vaccines or just kind of your your broader work in this? Yeah, so that was that was absolutely a very important issue. I mean, so one of our values was equity and sort of, of fairness. So we, we, we've sort of said that, well, I mean, the corona vaccination program cannot simply sort of be a, a means to which to eliminate all unfairness in society. So that, that can't be the sort of purpose here. But uh, we, we did say, you know, we wanted to flag it as an issue. We wanted to explicitly recognise that the pandemic uh, affects us all very unequally, both in terms of who's at risk, but also who's most affected and harmed by um, the corona restrictions. So there's two different uh, inequalities there. And, but unfortunately, they, of course, tend to affect. So both people who are um, socioeconomically disadvantaged both have a higher risk of, of, of death and, and disease from, from COVID, but they also tend to be a much more harmed by, um, by the restrictions as well. So it's a, bit, a, a double whammy. So we wanted to flag that and like make that explicit. Uh, but though, of course, the Corona vaccination program can't fix that. But we wanted to sort of put that in as a constraint that it should not make these inequalities worse if, if that could be avoided. So that was one issue, but also um, as I mentioned now, socioeconomic disadvantage is actually known to be um, a risk factor now. Um, so how high that risk factor is compared to, for example, excuse me, compared to, for example, age or other medical risk factors. I mean, that just depends. That's sort of contingent on where you are. I mean, we have, in a way, we have very good population health, I would say. I mean, much better than, than here in the UK, for example. You also have different levels of socioeconomic disadvantage. So Norway is very affluent. I mean, of course, we still have poverty, but it isn't to the same extent. So this particular factor, socioeconomic disadvantage, just didn't really play out as much. I mean, we can see a sort of social gradient um, in, in our death rates and, and, and morbidity rates, but it's not really our numbers are so low, we can't really see it very clearly, but we know it's there. I think if you look at the UK numbers, then you will see this much, much more clearly. And I think you will see you have much higher levels of deprivation here. You know, much the poverty uh, is much worse 
uh, and so this will have a much stronger effect. So I think in the, in Norway we did not end up recommending that say uh, lower socioeconomic groups should be given extra priority, uh, but that would make sense in the UK to do. I think. I mean, but again, it depends on your actual data and what it shows. And can you say a bit more about how so certain socioeconomic groups are both more susceptible to the virus as well as more susceptible to the um, challenges of, of lockdown? And I guess the susceptibility to the virus in particular, is that because of where people are working, how people are living, or is it because of the kind of care that people can or cannot get, or is it all of those things? Where where are those differences really rooted? What are those rooted in? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's all of those things you said. I mean, this is really, yeah, the, the social determinants of, of health, which we uh, yeah talk a lot about in my department. Uh, it's about the conditions in which you live and work, which have such an, uh, I mean, hugely significant impact on our health. So we have this motto in my department, health is more than a medical matter. And I think that's become so clear in, in the pandemic. But yes, you see, um, um, so for example, if you have the kind of job where you're exposed to lots of people, um, then yes, you have a much higher exposure to uh, to be infected, right? Uh, and also, I mean, from the very beginning, we, we, we got this lockdown, we had stay at home orders. Now my job, I can continue my job almost as before, just from home. I don't need to leave the house. But other people, frontline workers, uh, work in, in shops or um, uh, you know, carers. I mean, many types of jobs where you just, you cannot work from, yeah, delivery workers was another big group, any sort of uh, you know, public services. You have to go to work and then you'll be exposed to the virus. And many of these jobs are also the kinds of jobs where they are, tend to be low paid. Um, I mean, and yeah, if you if you lived if you lived a long life in, in poverty, then you will have worse health and you'll have more underlying health conditions. And so even if, so if you get the virus, you're also more likely to have a sort of complicated uh, you might you might have a complications and a severe outcome. So become severely ill. Or, or die from coronavirus. Um, and then another sort of issue is about yeah, living where you live. So overcrowded housing, again, uh, you're not going to be able to socially distance. You have a, maybe a multi-generational households. So if any one of those gets infected, the risk of passing it on within your household is very, very high. Um, and so, so you get all of that. Um, so that would, that would be sort of the risk of, of yeah, Exposure is, risk of exposure is higher. Risk of becoming very ill if you do get the virus is higher. Um, and in terms of being harmed by the restrictions, I think yes, one one level is sort of um, you know level of, of comfort. Again, I being stuck at home uh, is you know how bad is that going to be? That also depends on where you live. Some people have nice gardens and and so on. If you live again overcrowded housing it's going to be much worse for you. Um, but even, I mean, worse than that is this, uh, if you are exposed to the virus and you have to self-isolate, um, again, depending on the kind of job you have, you might not get paid. So and this has been a very big issue, I think, in the, in the UK, which has been, I mean, there's so many public health experts have talked about this at great length. You need to properly financially support people 
so that they can self-isolate and not uh, put others at risk. And this has not been done very well. Um, and this is one reason I, I'm convinced of that, that infection rates have been very high and haven't been um, haven't been reduced sufficiently. But I also think it's just terrible to be uh, put in a situation where you have to choose between feeding your family or putting your family at, at, at risk. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. And how do you think, because we're both here in the UK now, so how do you think the government has been able to respond to that? Like, I think some have been actually surprised at how much the Conservative government has done in terms of both trying to provide relief for people and also, um, you know, sticking with some of the public health recommendations, at least this this spring with the, lo- with the longer lockdown and really trying to balance those two things. And I think you may be getting some pushback to like both of those strategies from the left in some ways, and yet also going a lot further than I think um, many would have ever expected from a Tory government. So I was wondering how you read that and how kind of different political lenses kind of interpret these different policies. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting uh, question. I think, yes, it's true. I mean, the government has done a good job in, I mean, there's the furlough scheme, for example, so paying people who would otherwise have been simply lost their job. Um, but there, like I said, there were the people who, who didn't lose their job, they just have to keep going to work. And then if they get sick, they either have no sick pay or the sick pay is so low that they can't live on it. So those people are going to keep going to work no matter what, otherwise their families starve. So I think, um, and this, um, it's really something that was mentioned already in March. So these were the people falling outside of the furlough scheme. Um, so this was one of the things that had been mentioned, uh, which hasn't been addressed. It was it was only in October that they brought in this additional form of uh, sort of self-isolation package so that you could afford to not go to work. I think you were going to be given £500 for two weeks so that you didn't have to go to work. Um, however, I mean, this has been a bit of a scandal. Uh, people have not been able to to get this money, so they apply for it, and then you're told you're not eligible. So something has gone wrong there in in that response. And I think it's just um, it has been an important fact because who are these people? These are people living in deprived areas where infection rates are much higher. So so this kind of problem really um, makes infection rates much worse, or they stop us from bringing down the infection rates. So there's so many public health experts who, who've talked about this. And so I see even yes, the, the government should be given um, praise for the furlough scheme, but the furlough scheme doesn't isn't is not doesn't cover all the all the bases. And I think there's and I mean another issue with the self with the furlough scheme is that there were many self-employed people who fell outside of that. And it's taken a very long time to address that and respond to it. And I think that's kind of, to me, is is quite damning that, you know, the problem, it's not that we didn't know about the problem. It's been pointed out many times and we know how to fix it. And it just takes them a long time to respond and and puts people in terrible situations, no livelihood and and no income. Well, I, I, 
we might come back to this, but I wanted to ask you just about some of the other health inequalities areas that you've worked in prior to the pandemic and everything as well. Um, I know you've talked about disabilities in the past, but what other areas have you worked on that kind of are at this intersection of the political philosophy and public policy? I know you've worked before on like conscientious objection on like capabilities. What are, what are some of your other just passion areas of interest in health inequality? Well, I think we've kind of covered a lot, a lot of it already. I mean, I've always had this, uh, yeah, concern for the most disadvantaged in, in, in society. Um, so that that's been firmly my sort of uh, commitment um, to to help contribute in in some way, hopefully, to to improve um, the conditions for the worst off in society. But I think I mean one kind of inequality um, that wasn't so much on my radar before, but is thoroughly now uh, something I'm focused on is is racial health inequalities because that's that's come up as a huge issue. In, um, in in the UK during the pandemic. And I mean, when I studied health inequality as part of my PhD, there was, uh, well, the, the kind of comparison we would often compare with, with the US. And, and one sort of point of interest was always that the UK was very focused on uh, health inequality between different socioeconomic classes, whereas in the, U in the US, the focus was always much more on racial health inequality. Uh, and that difference has to be, it has to, to do with also, you know, how do you define these different uh, groups that you're comparing the health of? And so it's partly about the kind of data that you have. Uh, but anyway, I think I mean, at least it used to be the case that when we talked about health inequality, it was always like health inequality between social classes in the UK. Because so I think that conversation is, is is changing as a result of the pandemic. And I think that this is absolutely uh, needed because we've seen so much, I mean, so, um, uh, uh, BAMA groups have had so many, so much higher risk of of, of death and 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 severe illness from COVID. I mean, that's going to going together with the socioeconomic disadvantage, of course. I mean, it's it, it's it's all explained up through socioeconomic disadvantage. It's just become so visible that socioeconomic disadvantage is very racialized in the UK. I mean, just as it is in the US. I think you've had a focus on it in the US for for longer. Um, I mean. At least in, in certain circles, I think this is this true. Can you walk me through more about why, like why that reframing is crucial then for a policy perspective? Because I guess the way you were speaking just a minute ago in terms of health disparities and inequalities of the pandemic was very much in socioeconomic terms. And so if that's really where we're seeing it in terms of race and ethnicity as well, I guess, I guess conflating those two seems to to maybe lead to maybe not the most useful policy prescription. So what what is what is unique about race and ethnicity within, like why is it necessary to start speaking more about that rather than quote unquote, just socioeconomic terms, at least in a UK context? Well, I think, I mean, they, I think it's important because uh, to make it really crystal clear that it's not, it's not a question of sort of biological uh, or genetic vulnerabilities. Um, I mean, I don't know enough about this to to say whether that's never plays any role. But I mean, at least in the pandemic, I think we're fairly certain that these these additional this higher risk of of, of um, severe illness from COVID or, or death is not due to 
biological vulnerability is purely socioeconomic uh, disadvantage. And but in sort of in more general terms, so thinking outside of the pandemic as well, this this um, to distinguish between the sort of uh, racial inequality and socioeconomic inequality. It's important because we want to focus on the fact that structural racism is um, is in play. So it's it, there are some reasons why we see such a disproportionate amount of um, black and, and minority ethnic groups in lower socioeconomic classes. Now, why is that? That's where your structural racism comes in. Uh, but again, this is not something I've researched myself that I know a lot about, but yeah, I've been reading and following various commentators, uh, James Nazaru, uh, Zubaydah Haq, throughout the uh, pandemic. So uh, yeah, learning learning from them. Yeah, I just, this is something that I've just found um, very important, but hard to tease out. And again, I think, especially with something that's health oriented, to try and think about why inequalities have become entrenched and why socioeconomic inequalities have become entrenched along racial and ethnic lines, but also it's a health response, um, you know, to to make sure that the interventions are at the place where they're going to be most meaningful, even if that is, you know, back to thinking more in, in socioeconomic terms more broadly, like including BAME communities, but extending beyond BAME communities as well. And so I've been, um, yeah, just grappling with that a little bit with that conversation yeah i think i mean i think it's a really interesting question i don't i don't know the answer to in terms of you know how should we think about the response is it you know is it sufficient to think of it in terms of merely or merely not merely but you know is it sufficient to think of it in terms of uh eliminating socioeconomic disadvantage or is there some other element uh, that needs to to play in but I, I do know um in terms of the vaccine for example uh, we do see uh, higher levels of, of vaccine hesitancy in BAME communities. And so that seems to be something that's not uh, about socioeconomic disadvantage per se, but something about lack of trust maybe, or so, I mean, there's something else going going on there. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what the right response is. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point too. And I was gonna ask you if, if your expert group had looked at that at all with vaccine uptake and any kind of efforts to, um, you know, reach out to groups that that historically would be more hesitant to uh, to sign up for the vaccine or what have you, is that something that your group looked at at all or that you personally have thought on at all, um, or do you think that's even desirable to try and, and nudge uh, to try and nudge people in that direction? Well, I think we 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 did sort of. Make it make it explicit that um, to sort of meet a sort of equity value that additional effort was required um, by the government to so make sure that they reach all groups. So, I mean, we don't have the same issues. I mean, we have a very homogenous population in Norway. I mean, we have racism as well, of course, but we have it's it's. I don't know exactly how those patterns and structures compares uh, to the UK. So, I'm not going to say anything about that. But I mean, one issue that we did think about was, for example, undocumented uh, undoc undocumented immigrants. And, uh, you know, they, so that was a different kind of access issue, but they might simply not receive the information about where to get the vaccine, or, or, or they might be afraid to go and get the vaccine because they think they might get deported. So that was something that we gave as an example of where 
additional effort was needed to make sure they really got the vaccine. Um, um, so yes, I mean, if, if I was in the UK committee, I would be thinking along a similar lines in terms of the what, at least what the moral obligation of, of the government is. But I think, unfortunately, when, when that vaccine hesitancy is there, it's not a problem that can be solved easily and, and quickly, unfortunately. Um, on, on a broader level, what do, what do we get wrong about public health and inequality? Oh, that's a, well, that's a great that's a great question. But I mean, I think, yeah, my answer is going to be, uh, well, yeah, thinking back to this idea of, of health as, as more than a, the medical medical uh, as health is more than a medical matter that uh, we need to address the sort of broader social determinants of health and think about uh, the conditions in which people live and work. It's just become so clear to me yeah, this whole, you know, employment and labour policy, how that affects people's ability to be safe during the pandemic. I mean, they are the example I talked a lot about, you know, sick pay, how does that affect people's ability to, to protect themselves and stay safe from exposure and, and from exposing others? Um, so, yes, these socioeconomic policies is what we need to address to, to, to really protect health longer term. I mean, it's, it can be hard because um, these are sort of long term changes we need to make. We don't get to see the results immediately. Um, but yeah, if you, if you give people healthy conditions in which to live and work, they will live much longer, but we don't see our sort of benefits immediately. So politicians maybe are more interested in sort of immediate gain. Um, what's something on which your thinking has changed either over the course of the pandemic or just since you started your work in health inequalities? Oh, that's oh, that's a really interesting question as well. I think because of the departments that I worked in, so I'm in a social science department, which has just taught me so much. So I think, yeah, I, I, I've learned a lot from my colleagues and the empirical work that they do, and that's been a real privilege and, and really exciting for me. So I think, yeah, one way in which my thinking perhaps has changed is um, yeah, I've moved maybe further away from from philosophical theory in some respects. I kind of come to see certain types of distinctions uh, and theoretical differences may matter less in terms of informing policy or making policy recommendations. So yeah, some theoretical disagreements don't really matter for for yeah making policy recommendations. So I think that's something that has become maybe clearer to me through at least the last couple of years. Yeah. All right, well, I'll, I'll end on where we usually end, and that's uh, to ask if you have any book recommendations, either on anything that we've been chatting about or just other books that you've read that, that you would recommend to listeners. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I recommend two books, I think. So one um, is Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, that I'm, I'm reading right now, um, and that might seem perhaps a dark choice of reading for, for this time. But I did I did find that I, I needed, yeah, again, you know, going for more sort of existential depth was something I, I needed to get through these times. Uh, but yeah, I think it's an, it's an amazing, a very wise uh, book. Um, so that, yeah, that's a recommendation. I know we chatted about that when you said you were going to read it, because that's one that's on my bookshelf. And I knew it would be good, because obviously like classic and all this. 
But I remember really being blown away when I read it, and I should pick it up and read it again. Um, so, okay, great. So, Man's Search for Meeting, and what's your second one? Well, so the second book um, I'm going to recommend is, uh, yeah, so this is one of my favourite academic books. Uh, yeah, it's written by my supervisor, Joe Wolfe, and, and his colleague, Avner Deshalit, and it's called Disadvantage. Um, but it's, I, I love that book, and I go back to it often. So it really... Yeah, it's, it's such a um, it's such an inspiration for me that book. Um, I mean, it, it touches on many of the things that we have talked about. Um, but yeah, so as I said before, my supervisor is one person who's trying to bring political philosophy more into the direction of really uh, affecting policy. And so he's trying there, I think, to yeah to bridge that uh, gap. There used to be more of a gap, but he tried to bridge that gap in that book between theory and and practice and and really show. Um, how political philosophy uh, could be relevant for for policy, and this is why the book is called Disadvantage rather than Inequality or Equality, because he's interested in those at the very bottom of society and who they are, what what is disadvantage, what how should we yeah what are different aspects or dimensions of disadvantage, and how can we best address them in policy? Yeah, first, how can we identify those groups who are the most disadvantaged in society? Um, how can we sort of diagnose their disadvantage and what should we do to protect them in, in policy terms? So I think it's a really fantastic book. Great. Well, Gree, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, yeah, just congrats and well done to you and the, and the team in Norway for all your hard work on the vaccines and look forward to chatting with you more. Thanks a lot, Julie. It's it great to, to be on the podcast. So thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you once again to Gree Wester. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like the podcast, please just take a couple seconds to subscribe, share it with a friend, give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, feel free to DM me on Twitter at DrJulieNorman2. Thank you for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.